This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Hi, good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming out again for what is now um, our sort of third substantive session. Um, does this make it our fourth session overall um, for the course Immigration Rights and Wrongs? Uh, we're going to have a very, very provocative uh, evening, I believe, here at our session entitled At the Border, Immigrants, Enforcers, and Advocates. Uh, it seems we can't go a day or two without some event, at least here in the U.S., tied to immigration making the news. One of the co-sponsors of the quote-unquote fence bill uh, to build the 700-mile fence and earlier to build the 14-mile fence that's, that's already there. Duncan Hunter has decided that he needs to run for president. It's not enough being chair of the House Armed Services Committee. Um, and uh, equally interesting, for those of you who may not have looked at it, was a just deeply sardonic editorial in today's New York Times about the fence bill and the three lies behind it, according to the New York Times. And they're, they're normally pretty passive in their political critiques, especially of a sitting administration, but they characterize three key elements of the bill as, as um, filled with lies, uh, which is striking even for them. Uh, we're going to have a dynamic session this evening uh, that's going to do something, I think, to get us back to the note on which we started. That is, uh, to hear the voices, to see the struggles, to feel the experiences of those who are struggling to cross the border. Uh, our session this evening is going to be moderated by uh, our own Professor uh, Al Camarillo. Uh, as many of you know, Al Camarillo is the Miriam and Peter Haas Centennial Professor in Public Service and of course a very distinguished member of our own history department. He's played many leadership roles at Stanford, including that of uh, being the founding director for the Center for Comparative Studies and Race and Ethnicity. He's won many honors and recognitions, including a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, a Rockefeller Fellowship, and he's been a fellow at the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences. He, of course, has received great recognition for his teaching and dedication and service here at Stanford, including a Dinkelspiel Award for outstanding service to undergraduate education. He is very widely published and quite rightfully regarded as one of the founding intellectual figures in Chicano studies. His books include Chicanos in a Changing Society, From Mexican Pueblos to American Barrios with Harvard University Press, Chicanos in California, A History of Mexican-Americans, he has a forthcoming book entitled Not White, Not Black, Mexicans and Racial-Ethnic Borderlands in American Cities with, with Oxford University Press. He's currently working on a book entitled Going Back to Compton, Reflections of a Native Son on Life in an Infamous American City. My pleasure to turn the, the podium and the session over to my colleague and friend Al Camarillo. Thank you, Larry. Uh, hello, everybody. Glad you're here for our third I guess our fourth session. And it's my pleasure to serve as moderator uh, and to introduce um, a friend and colleague, Daniel Grudy. But before I do that, bear with me. I want to take a shot at uh, categorizing the, some major discourses, some of which you've already been exposed to, about especially undocumented immigration uh, in the United States. And, in effect, uh, this in, it will be a bit of review for you. Those of you that are enrolled in the class, you need review, right? So a little bit of review. It'll be my effort um, as you know, my opinion, my perspective on some of these discourses. And this, is, this will lead us, of course, 
uh, to a discussion about the topic today. And in a way, I'll try to categorize what that topic is as well. So how might we categorizing, uh, categorize these discourses that many were familiar with, others not so much? Um, first, we have to understand they overlap. No question about it. They're, they overlap, uh, and we uh, have to understand that when we create these categories, um, that there's um, meshing, there's interlinkages, if you will, interconnections between them. Um, and again, these categories that will, will reflect the presentations you've had the last few weeks, Crossing Arizona, the, the film that we started out with. There's another film tonight, of course, that will add yet add uh, another perspective. Um, I also want you, again, especially the students in the class, it, as I suggest, and I suggest these categories, I want you to think of what categories you might come up with. You might focus on a different emphasis for some category of discourse. You might say that, well, why did I make a rather false separation between one category and another? So think about these. We want you, we want you to think about what are the nuances, perhaps new streams of discourses that are being created. So I could suggest to you there's perhaps a new discourse uh, that, that will emerge as more uh, as the United States pushes further on building this fence. Right? Okay, a few things that we have to understand. Um, you go back to May Nye's uh, early presentation, a fellow historian. One of the things we, we, we must recognize that these discourses today are not new on the American scene. They've been played over and over again for at least 100 and 150 years. Yes, different, different historical eras, but if we strip away uh, much of the language of, this, of these discourses, they go back, they take us back 100 years to immigration from Europe, or 140 years ago with, with substantial immigration from a place like China. So they're we have to historicize them. We also have to understand, this is the historian in me, understanding how they change over time, right? Because influences of one sort or another will affect the direction of these public discourses that we engage in and that Americans in the past have, uh, have articulated. So it's variations in time and space, uh, but they're historical. Um, and if we think about the, the session last week, we know that these discourses are deeply influenced, fundamentally influenced by representations of all kinds. Language, the metaphors, right? We talked, there was a... Uh, discussion about metaphors, uh, the social psychology around representations, which Professor Marcus and Professor Moya talked about last, last time. Uh, symbols, right, all kinds of symbols that are parts of the representations that get embedded in these discourses. Belief systems in general, right, so they're, uh, that which we um, perceive, that which we articulate or engage in in a discourse is going to be effect, affected by how, what kind of belief system each of us uh, uh, takes ownership of. Now, before I talk just very briefly about these categories of discourse, I want to um, mention this. So I was watching uh, the nightly local news last week, and this is after Bush authorized uh, the, signed the authorization to create the fence, allocation of $1.2 million initially uh, for this fence that they didn't tell you this, 
was probably going to, in the end, if it is in fact built, will cost between four and seven billion dollars. Now, where will he get this money from? That's a different session. All right. So this was uh, an interview of, think about it, this happens all the time over a big issue in American society. Interview people on the street. So there was this number of people, but I want to share with you this one quote from a man, probably my age, 35 or so. Uh, <laughs> Um, and they asked him, what do you think about this bill? And he had this to say, I'm not prejudiced or nothing, but every time you turn around, there are more and more of them that are not of our culture. And they get the better jobs. Okay. I'm going to bring you back to that quote in a few minutes because it's part of the discourse that was clearly reflected in this man's very, very brief comments about his reaction to the fence. Okay, so hold on to that, we'll come back. Okay, um, six dominant discourses, and I'm just going to very briefly go through them, give you an example. Uh, first one will be called the public policy discourse. Second, ethnocultural discourse. Third, and again, you've heard a lot about some of these already, the economic slash occupational discourse. The fourth I would call, and this is something of fairly recent origin in terms of the intensity of its affecting discourses, the illegality discourse. And the fifth one would what I call the social liabilities discourse. And then the sixth one will be the segue to, to Daniel Gruden, and, and uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Public policy. All right. The discourse about particular components of public policy debate, whether it be Congress or, or local, but usually it's congressional because federal, federal policy, right? So the discourse is about usually federal, congressional uh, policy, and, it's, and oftentimes around specific policy issues. So, for example, building the fence, security related, or it might be something about employer sanctions, increasing penalties for employers who knowingly hire undocumented immigrants, right? But we can say that the people engaged in this course, they're really focused about the policy issue per se. It's not to say there aren't other things embedded in their thinking about immigration, but in the discourse, and we've seen so much of it the last six months about particular policy components. So that's the policy discourse, and we, discourse, and we hear about it all the time, right? Um, the ethnocultural may be the most dominant one. Uh, for the longest period of time. But I want to suggest to you there's two ways to look at this. There are the fears and concerns among members of the U.S. citizenry that somehow, somehow the culture and the society of the United States is being eroded, undermined, affected negatively some way. And often, often you know, they think about the ways they talk about it pejoratively, negatively. Um, the immigrants, they're not learning English, right? So they're not, they're, they're not um, assimilating in American society. Um, they're clannish. They like to live, many families, in one house. Uh, it's their culture. It's, it's a counter to what we believe is the culture of the United States. Um, so there, there, are, there are many, so language and culture uh, and identity become central to the ethnocentral, but that, uh, eth the, the, the um, cultural, eth ethnocultural, right? But flip it around. So if you, if, you, if you shift the angle, there's an ethnocultural, but from the immigrants' perspective, 
And that is oftentimes viewed as immigrants, undocumented immigrants, not what I'm talking about primarily, as living in an intolerant society, the discourse about bias and discrimination, right? So it, it's a different take on the ethnocultural, but from the immigrant perspective. We usually hear about the dominant larger society and the ethnocultural uh, discourse, right? Um, but I think we have to think of it at least two ways. In the first session, you heard about what we could call the economic, but I put a slash on it, occupational, because it is about jobs oftentimes. Uh, and, it, and, and if we um, try to make it simplistic, it's about economic benefits and economic costs, right? Which are, uh, would you support? Which do you think are operating in American society? Are the immigrants contributing something fundamentally uh, to the economy through occupations or not? Are they a dream? in some way? Are they taking jobs for American citizens? Things we've heard for a long, long time. Other things that would uh, be the economic occupational taxes, are they paying taxes? No, some people argue. Other people say, yes, indeed, they're paying taxes. In fact, most Americans don't know there's tens of billions of dollars sitting in the U.S. Treasury sent in, right, by employers of employees whose Social Security numbers do not exist. We're not giving the money back. It's being collected. Fortunately, they, at least from what I understand, they can't spend it yet. Okay, so uh, economic, occupational. Then this other one, which I think is, is, uh, is huge, and again, th this, is, uh, um, this is not rocket science. Illegality. Unlawful entry. No rights. Um, answer, deportation greater security at the border. And so, so much of the discourse of late, especially this last round of congressional public policy discourse was about illegality. So public policy discourse, illegality discourse combined there. Um, one of those of you, how many from California? Okay. How many down towards San Diego, one of the great uh, iconic uh, views of illegality? The signs, there's a sign of a mother and a father and a child running across the freeway. So, you know, you, you go along Highway 280 and there are signs about deer, right? Deer crossing, this is immigrant crossing. So it becomes a symbol, right? Illegality, these are people that are also going to cut in front of you on the freeway. Now, I've been to the border probably 50 times in the last five years. I've never run over an immigrant family. I've not even seen an immigrant family anywhere near the freeway. But think about what happens. Remember our discussion last week, representation. What happens when a motorist sees that sign? Right? They're illegals and watch out for them because they're coming across the freeway. Um, and then this, this other one, this, this fifth one, social liabilities. And this has been a discourse of substantial um, significance for quite a long time, at least since the, the, the mid-1980s, maybe even earlier. Immigrants, undocumented immigrants, immigrants again, are drained on resources. Their kids are going to public schools. Again, uh, taxpayers are footing the bill for this. The health care system, they're uh, causing enormous burdens on a fra already fragile health care system. They add to traffic congestion, plus they can't drive very well. You know, we hear that as well. 
Uh, social liabilities, all kinds of problems in society because of their presence here. Um, it can be mild. It can be that, uh, well, you know, their kids are here. We need to educate them, but th there are some issues there. We, the schools, the public schools are going to are, are, are cash-strapped, right? So it can be mild social liability discourse and then really extreme social liability discourse. I want to take you back to crossing Arizona. The Minuteman, that rabid Minuteman, I, I don't know if you remember this guy. I can't forget him. So um, the extreme would be, recall his comments, and I paraphrase here, go into the hospitals, take them out of the hospital, uh, hospital bed, tear the IVs from them, and take them back to the board, or go into the schools, take those damn kids out of the classroom, and send them, where, send them back across the board. Well, that's extreme, social liabilities discourse. Right, and everything in between. Um, now, let me return to the man I mentioned was interviewed, uh, interviewed uh, the, the man on the street interviewed last week. And let me repeat the, 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 the quote. I'm not prejudiced or nothing, he claimed. But every time you turn around, there, and there are more and more of them that are not of our culture. And they get better jobs than us. He had to throw that in at the end. All right. Think about the discourses here. Where, where do these discourses, this quote, where do they emerge? The last phrase, and they get better jobs than us, right? That's the economic occupational one. And I mean, some of my colleagues in the humanities here could do a, a great uh, deconstruction of this quote. But I mean, it's, some of this is pretty, pretty, uh, uh, you know, it's not veiled. Uh, so um, you turn around, and there are more and more of them not of our culture. Not of our cultural, ethno-cultural discourse. And of course, he's not prejudiced. Well, we'll let that one go. Um, okay, here's what I want to leave with you. There's another discourse. And I could label it, it could be labeled a, a number of things, but I call it the humanitarian, moral, ethical, slash religious. So, I want you to think about the, the, some questions here uh, as we get into the film and then as Daniel Grudy uh, makes his presentation, we get into questions. Take that man on the streets in Oakland that was interviewed, uh, who I quoted twice. Now let's say, let's speculate and say that he is a devout Baptist. And we can see the discourses of ethnocultural, uh, the ethnocultural discourse and the occupational economic discourse, obvious in, in, in his quote. But what if we were somehow to be able to get to this man's heart and say, these are people. Um, if you are a Christian, right? if you believe, uh, if you are a spiritual religious person who believes in Christian tenets, what would that do to his discourse? Could it possibly redirect his thinking? Is it consistent with this thinking? Right? At least embedded in this quote. What happens when we change the angle, humanitarian angle, right? Or if we were to get, again, to people's hearts and souls and say, wait a minute, if we think about these people as human beings, if we are to uh, reach them in some way uh, through religious um, systems of belief, does that change our discourse, right? So that becomes, I think, an interesting proposition for us. Um, others of you may say it makes 
no difference. You can say you're a devout Baptist or a devout Catholic or whatever and still hold some very pejorative um, perspectives on undocumented immigrants. But tonight, we want to focus on the humanitarian, moral, ethical, religious discourse, right? We're going to show you a film in a few minutes, so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to introduce Daniel Grudy, and then we're going to watch the film. Daniel will come up here and uh, give a presentation, and then we'll engage in some discussion. And I want you to think, uh, those of you who are, who claim some type of religion, who have a spiritual component to you, what happens when we think seriously about this discourse and what relevance does it have as we think about these other categories of discourse, uh, discourses? Okay, uh, it's my pleasure to, uh, to introduce Daniel Grudy. I first met him and became very impressed with him. We, we were involved in a project um, that resulted in the remaking of a classic film about immigration. I'm going to leave this book up here, by the way. So if those of you that are interested in films about immigration, you have to see Alambrista. We've made it very easy for you to do. Daniel and a group of us were involved in the remaking of a film, this film that, which uh, it was uh, premiered first in 1978, and no one ever saw it. It's an amazing story about an undocumented immigrant from the state of Michoacan who comes to California in the late 1970s, and it puts the human face on immigration. So um, I met Daniel through, through this project. He wrote an essay for this book. We were involved in a number of meetings, and this is when I knew we had a special person working with us who brought something to our discussion that none of us academics were bringing, right? The humanitarian, ethical, moral, religious discourse, and other discourses as well. Um, so it was uh, in, in, from that experience that I, I urged the CCSRE faculty to invite uh, Daniel out here, and we're, we're delighted that he could attend. He is a, uh, was a young man with roots in uh, New England, decided to go to the heartland of America for his undergraduate education. We received a BA from Notre Dame. Then the wanderlust continued. He headed further west and he came uh, to the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley where he received his Master's Divinity and his Doctorate in Theology. He's a man of incredible talents. So he's not only Father Grudy, Professor Grudy, Assistant Professor of Theology at Notre Dame, so we went back to his alma mater. He's also director of the Center for Latino Spirituality and Culture in the Institute for Latino Studies at Notre Dame. Uh, he has a number of books, which I will mention. Uh, so the, the uh, prodigious scholar part of it, obvious, uh, and when one looks at the number of publications, uh, a book called um, Border of Death, Valley of Life, An Immigrant Journey of Heart and Spirit. Fourth booking, uh, forthcoming book called Globalization, Spirituality, and Justice, uh, Navigating um, the Path to Peace. He is co-editor of two other books that are forthcoming, so a very um, uh, prolific scholar, especially of late. Uh, one is entitled The Option for the Poor in Christian Theology. He's also co-editor of a book entitled A Promised Land, A Perilous Journey, Theological Perspectives on Migration. Um, but it's this film that we've come to see and to have him talk about and to, to engage with us some discussion about the humanitarian, ethical, 
moral, religious discourse. That's not his terminology, by the way, so that's mine. So he, he, may, he may not like that terminology, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out there for him. Uh, I want you to, to hear uh, how much play this film has had that we're going to see in a few minutes. You know, to get into a film festival, you have to be nominated and then selected by a jury of people. And it is very impressive this film uh, has, has, um, has shown at a number of film festivals in, in recent months. So I'll mention a few of them. The Australian International Film Festival, uh, again, official um, selection for that film festival, and that was in October of this year. It was uh, broadcast on PBS in the uh, Santa Rosa area, area on KRCB. This was in September. It was um, nominated for the best documentary in the New Way Media Film Festival in Berkeley um, very recently. Another one, the Henry Chapin Media Award finalists. And this was, um, this, this is the, the film which you'll see, Dying to Live, uh, as this was nominated for the outstanding television film coverage that positively impacts hunger, poverty, and self-reliance. Um, and there's others and others. So we're getting, we'll have uh, now the, the premiere of this film uh, at Stanford, one that is getting in, uh, substantial recognition and nomination for, uh, for a number of awards. So we're going to watch the film now. And then uh, immediately after that, Daniel Grudy will come up and share with us some of his wisdom. And then we'll engage in some discussion.
society may rob this immigrant of, of any dignity and self-respect. Quite the contrary is true within our own deepest spiritual values we have. We were amazed by the, the fate of these people. They go through so much. And yet, they, they say always, Dios me va a ayudar. Dios is, uh, God is going to help me. And uh, when I asked them, ¿Cómo están? How are you? Oh, they told me, Estamos vivos, gracias a Dios. We are alive, thanks to God. <coughs> there is the gift of empathy, uh, of being able to recognize a shared humanity um, with people who endure so much. El migrante es un hermano. El migrante es una persona que decide algo muy difícil.
sensors and motion detectors were added to an arsenal of devices used to keep the undocumented out of the U.S. <coughs> then came the 911 attack. It uh, changed very significantly the attitudes of Americans toward immigrants. The political debate and dialogue in the United States mixed, matched, and confused terrorists Small 
true story next to the tracks in Orizaba, where a, a teenage boy had taken the leftover fruit from the market. And I thought uh, uh, that this boy was going to toss the oranges and then catch them from the baseball. At the last second, he lunged towards the freight car with these guys and their arms hanging out. And through my viewfinder, all I saw was the blurred motion of the train going by. I didn't see the most magic picture of my trip. Two hands touching, the migrants and the gift giver. Just a brief, brief rush, as if they were each communicating without words, saying, please go with God, go with peace, go with love. And the migrant on the northbound freight train saying, thank you. special photograph in, in my series, Down to El Norte. It, it's a picture of Santo Antonio Game holding on to the sides on the end of a rail car. I was laying on top of the adjoining boxcar, looking straight down. I took one picture, and then he opened his mouth. The emotion came directly through the camera, into my heart, into my soul. And Santo told me, I'm going to Canada.
checkpoint is run by the Mexican government. It's a place where those heading north are warned of the dangers ahead. They are told do not run from the border patrol, wear warm clothes at night, and carry lots of water. They are tired and scared and crammed into these small vans. Their emotional state straddles a border of hope and Whatever discomfort they feel now, it will pale in comparison to what lies ahead. A few miles up the road, the federales may stop and search them and demand bribes. And then there's the staging area at the border. It is an hour till sunset in the border town of Sasquatch.
up an hour and ten minutes in three minutes. We spent uh, the third night sleeping near a highway in uh, Route 86 that goes across Arizona. We crossed under the highway through storm culverts uh, early that night and walked another six hours and were picked up the next day, three and a half days after. John Red and his colleagues, the most difficult part is finding tracks made by children. 
sunset in the Arizona desert, about 25 miles north of the border. This is a migrant trail coming from the city of Sassadine. It leads to a water station, one of more than 70 run by Humane Borders, a faith-based group with headquarters in Tucson. These water stations are, are 58-gallon, they're actually measured in metric meters, 58-gallon recycled Coca-Cola syrup tanks. Humane Borders was created in the year 2000 response to an increasing number of migrant deaths in the exist to uh, take death out of the immigration equation. Our mission is to provide humanitarian assistance to these migrants that are uh, risking their lives crossing the desert. Humane Borders operates with the support of some local governments who find it cheaper to help provide water than to pay the cost associated with burying the migrant dead. As you travel the path of the migrant, there are constant reminders of the risks they take. Some of the migrants um, just go crazy and and they tear off their clothing and they leave. Uh, you find that there is a trail of clothes. Um, others seem very conscious um, of their impending death and um, they will often make
wanted to think of how the way of the immigrant is the way of the cross. They experience an economic crucifixion in their poverty, a social crucifixion in their homes and families, a political crucifixion in these grandest illegal aliens. For those who die here, it's an actual crucifixion, a place for migrants dying for more dignified life, dying to live. Join me in welcoming uh, Daniel Jody to Stanford. Thanks. Well, it's wonderful to be here in Stanford, such a great place like Stanford. And, and also just to share some reflections with you about how I see immigration and how I've studied it over the last number of years as a theologian, as a Catholic priest, as a Christian, and uh, at the core of it all as a human being. And how do we look at this, as, as Professor Camarillo laid out so beautifully, these different ways of analyzing the situation and the different interpretive lenses we use. And so I have to say kind of right from the start that really I do look at this in these categories. And particularly I'm looking at it in terms of what I would call a theology of migration as well as a spirituality of migrants. And maybe a place to begin would just be to segue uh, to tell you a little bit of a story about this film. Uh, this was actually a project that we had been working on for a number of years and, to be honest, quite unsuccessfully. And I worked with three different film producers and for various reasons, sometimes limitation of resources, sometimes uh, just difference, differences in perspectives, uh, it didn't work out, it didn't unfold. But I remember what happened one day was a very, very important turning point in the process of making this film. I had buried an uncle of mine whose name was Bill Grudy. And he happened to be my godfather as well. And after the funeral, the day after, I actually went home, visited my parents in Philadelphia, and I decided to open up my email. And on the message line of this one email, it, it just said, a note from Bill Grudy. And I was taken aback, and I thought, oh my gosh, he made it. <laughs> Took him about a day to get connected, but, you know, everything seems to be going well. So I opened up this email, and it just happened to be this guy named Bill Grudy who lives up in Northern California. He just went to Google, and he just put in the last name Grudy. He wanted to see what web pages were out there. So he says, you know, listen, I live out in, Nor Nap I live out in the Napa Valley. And he says, if you're ever out this way, he says, uh, I'm very interested in the work you're doing. And so never really wanting to refuse an invitation in the Napa Valley. And coming out actually to Berkeley, I had done, as uh, Professor Caminillo says, I'd been coming, I came back to Berkeley a few weeks later, and so I invited him down for dinner. So the plane landed in the afternoon, and then I went over to my, my community's house, and I walked in, and some of the, my brothers in community said to me, will you be here for dinner? And I said, uh, yes, I will. And I said, as a matter of fact, I met somebody on the internet, and I invited him over for dinner too. <laughs> so they said, you did what? I said, yeah, some guy's name is Bill Grudy. He's going to come over for dinner, too. So they braced themselves, and then they got a little anxious about this guy coming through the door. And so we began a conversation. And so I says, well, you know, what, what, you know what's your story? And so he said, well, you know, I used to live out in Washington, uh, D.C. I was an NBC News correspondent for NBC News Radio for the White House. And, uh, and I thought, oh, wow, you're that guy. We always wondered whether we were related to you. And he says, yeah, I came out here to the West Coast. Now I've gone into early retirement. I started getting into video productions. So to make a long story short, we actually worked on this uh, production together. But in the process, 
we actually traced our family history back to two brothers who actually came over from Ireland where there was a Grudy River. And they came over through Canada and then came in as illegal immigrants into the United States 200 years ago. But the two brothers then got into a fight and one brother to anger the other brother became Protestant. So he went with a Protestant line, my family went with a Catholic line, it took 200 years to get the family back together again. <laughs> but they probably had a name like Ryan and they didn't really want it to sound too Irish when they got here, so they changed it to Grudy, which is a Gaelic name, which means crooked. So, <laughs> so the very smart uh, men these were, but, uh, but, but and eventually uh, it was interesting that I'm actually at a school now of the Fighting Irish, and you know most people think about that in terms of football, but actually the Fighting Irish is really a, a, a social justice cry of immigrants who are being discriminated against by mainstream society. And so it's rather, rather striking, you know, to be part of this long history as Professor Camarillo dated it back 100 years, even on 200 years to the Irish immigrants. But even I'd like to take it a little further, uh, even talk a little bit today about how this goes back even to biblical times and that there's something deeply theological and something at the core of what it means to be human, to be in movement, to be a migrant. I'd like to just uh, also share with you just two other experiences. This, uh, basically tell you, maybe just to frame this a little bit, for the last number of years, I've been working with immigrants probably about the last 20 years, you know, uh, different parts of the country, different parts of Latin America. But I've come to see that this is an incredibly complex issue. And I think that if we don't acknowledge it's complex from the start, either we're not listening or we really don't understand. And so in the process of working down on the border with coyote smugglers, with the border patrol, with the, even the vigilante groups and the Minutemen and sitting down and having conversations with them, with congressional leaders or homeland security people, uh, and with the immigrants themselves and the, and the hospital and educational facilities, talking to them directly and trying to understand this issue really made my head spin. And it really said, wow, there are a lot of different perspectives. And each person in this perspective has a legitimate right or issue that they can claim as legitimate. And so I think that it's in the process of that saying, well, then how then do we sort out this complexity? I think it starts with complexity, but I think if we just end in complexity, we just relativize it to well, whoever's perspective is the loudest or the most forceful or in this place, whoever in the media, whoever has the spotlight. But there were a couple moments for me that, that were very significant and I'd like to leave you with uh, maybe um, one significant image that to me capsulizes everything here about what immigration means from a perspective of theology and Christian theology. And I'd like to do it by way of a story. And it happened that I was actually living in South Bend, Indiana, and I was working in a parish at the time, and I was, it was very, very new in the parish. So when you first go into a parish and you start having to preach and minister the sacraments, it's a bit overwhelming. And no matter how much formal theology you had or education, it's a, the learning curve is absolutely huge. So I get this call at 5 o'clock in the morning, and when you get a call at 5 o'clock in the morning, you know, I just sort of jolted out of bed and I said, oh my gosh, it's something in the emergency room. And I pick up the phone and it turns out that it's Margarita Rubalcaba. And Margarita Rubalcaba is the oldest daughter of 14 kids. And they're immigrants and they had just come across the border. And they'd come across illegally and they live living in uh, literally a very small apartment, all the kids and the, and the parents. And so she goes, Daniel, Daniel. She says, look, <clears throat> my car won't start. I only started to work two days ago. And she said, if I can't get to work today, I know I'm going to lose my job and it's going to be terrible for the family. So she says, can you do anything? I said, look, I said, 
Margarita, I don't know anything about cars. She says, but if you want, I'll be right down. So she's, wait, 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 one more thing. She said, look, my, my sister Christina wants to talk to you. Christina is 17 years old and she's nine months pregnant. And she goes, Christina's going into labor. I said, oh my gosh. So I said, I'll be right down. So I rush down there and then I walk in there. Now the mother of the 14 greets me. And then she says, look, Christina, she says, just keep walking back and forth. It may not be time yet. All right. So, you know, she's done this 14 times. You know, she's got a pretty good idea about what happens here. So I says, look, I'll take, the, I'll take Margarita to the work, and then I'll come back here, all right, and we'll see where we're at. So I took the one daughter to work, come back here, and she looks at me. She says, nope, she's ready to go. She says, i got to stay here with the kids. She says, you got to take her. So I'm like, I said, oh, my gosh. So I said, look, take Christina's hand. I bring her out to the car, close the car door. Then I get in on the other side, and just sweat is just pouring down my head, you know. And then Christina looks at me, she goes, three minutes, three minutes. I'm like, Th three minutes, what? You know, she goes, the contractions are three minutes apart. I'm like, oh my gosh, this kid's going to pop out right here in the car. He's going to be amniotic sac and umbilical cords all over the place. And I said, they never taught me any of this in the seminary. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do, supposed to do here. So, so I rush her to the hospital, you know, get her all set up, you know, and then I hold her hand, you know. And then the nurse comes in, you know, and she goes, who are you? And I thought maybe saying father at that moment might not be the best thing to say. <laughs> so I said, I'm just a good friend here. And so I actually, you know, stayed with her for about two, three hours, went past. And then finally, you know, I looked at her and I said, look, look Christina, no, no offense, but like, how long does this usually take anyways, you know? <laughs> I said, I better give my first funeral homily tomorrow and I have no idea what to say. So I said, look, don't take this personally, but just, just hold my hand here while you're kind of getting ready. I says, I need to make a phone call. So what I did was I called a, a friend of mine who had done a suicide funeral. This was a very tough first homily. Uh, for, it was a suicide funeral of a 13-year-old who, who took his life. So I, I had no idea what to say. So I talked on the phone to my friend. I said, look, what do I do in a situation like this? So I began talking you know, to him for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then suddenly Christina just erupts in the background. You know? And he goes, gosh, what, I mean, what's going on over there? You know, I said, look, this is just another day at an immigrant parish. I'm just helping give birth to this child here. But a number of hours later, there was this baby that was born, and the baby's name, they named the baby Krista, literally a little Christ. And this is the picture. We literally had the hope for life on the one hand. We had the experience of death on the other. But out of that, there was a new life that was born, and this was the life of Christ. And this is really what the heart of Christian theology is, is how do we think about God? from the perspective of this death-life dynamic. And in the end, Christian theology should lead us to a deeper reflection of what it means to be human. You know, what does it mean to be human before God? And so this is what my, my research has been about, is going out into the deserts, going out into the mountains where immigrants cross over the border, where they, some of them actually, uh, you know, where they run out of food, where they run out of the water, and where other people even die in the midst of the desert. And it's out of that, how do the immigrants themselves speak about God? You know, not how do I as a theologian talk to them about God. You know, I guess I learned when I was in graduate studies, I was studying in Berkeley, going down to the migrant camps in Southern California at the same time. And it became clear, clear very quickly. In the beginning, they used to say, Father, you know, why, why are you getting a doctorate anyways? You know, I mean, what, what's the deal? And, and, and what I heard in that question is they said to me, you know, Father, we don't really care that you know. We just want to know that you care. You know? 
Whereas the people in Berkeley didn't care that I cared, they just cared that I know. So working in between these borders, I think, is, is, is something that, you know, I, I think was all part of the theology of migration, is how to go beyond borders. But this was this understanding of how to think about death, life, and how to think about God, how to think about Christ from the perspective of death, life dynamics. Uh, very, very important. It's at the core of theology. When I was doing my, uh, my comprehensive exams, I remember they said, look, if you ever just don't know what to say, you know, in an answer, he said, just say it's a Paschal mystery, you know? <laughs> so that answers everything. So death, resurrection basically is the gist of it all. And, but, you know, in Spanish, there's an interesting um, dimension here because in Spanish, when a woman gives birth, the literal translation is that she gives light to the world, you know? And if this recategorizing and reframing or thinking in theological terms about migration can contribute, I hope, anything, it's the capacity to open up a new imagination about how we think about this. What if we saw immigrants not as a threat, but as bringing new light to us? You know? what, what, what would that be like? And you know, like you, I mean, I have to try to make sense of what my life is about, um, what it means before God, what are the responsibilities I have to my brothers and sisters in need. And as I look at the text the, of the Christian scriptures, there's one that really jumps out to me in, in the end of the New Testament. It's Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Sound like you never hear Catholic quoting chapter and verses. They just, Catholics just don't know the Bible, but here you hear it tonight. <laughs> Matthew 25, chapter 31 to 46. This is the last judgment. This is the only criteria we have for judgment in the New Testament. The only place that Jesus says, you know, this is what it's about in the end. You know, and he doesn't say how many times did you go to Mass or what about the rosaries or how many times you say it, you know, and nothing against these things, certainly at the heart of my faith. But what he basically says at the end, is says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was sick and you came to see me. I was imprisoned and you came to visit me. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. And then in the end, what you did to the least of my brothers and sisters, you did to me. You know, that there's this mysterious connection between the least of society and the presence of a God who has died and risen. Well, as I look at it in the immigrant experience, you know, I remember once giving my job talk, you know, uh, where I'm currently at, and at the end, this very distinguished professor says, well, this is all very interesting, and it was, in my opinion, a deeply moving talk, <laughs> even though it wasn't obvious to this person. And he says, well, what does theology have to do with migration? And I thought, well, when I think about the immigrant, it's like hungry in their homelands, thirsty in the deserts, naked, when they're robbed even to gunpoint down to their clothing, sick in the hospitals because they've had to drink even down to their own urine, imprisoned in detention centers, and if they get here, they're, they're estranged. So maybe as we look at death life, as we look at this, say how can immigrants themselves teach us about who God is in our midst today? And as one theologian says very, very poignantly, he says, in the end, it's not that the church saves the immigrant, but the, but the immigrant who has the capacity to believe even in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, it's the immigrant who saves the church. So 
I think that there are, are many things that I, I'd like to highlight, but in, in the little time we have, because I know we want to open this up for some, some conversation, some more conversation about this, but I, I want to just um, maybe highlight a few points. One is the humanity of the migrant, two is the journey of the migrant, and three, the spirituality of the migrant. I want to just kind of say it around those three points, but also kind of talk about, uh, do it w with some experience of what I had doing this research at the border, but just how important it is in all of this to move beyond the borders that we even create in our own minds and hearts. That is a much more difficult to cross than a 700-mile fence, uh, the ones that we construct within our own minds and hearts. And I learned this as I was doing my research, because I had very clear stereotypes of Minutemen and Border Patrol agents and all these others until I got to talk with them. And they didn't always completely persuade me, but they began to give me some different ways of looking at things, and they helped break down some walls that I had in my own mind. But I remember one key moment I had with the Border Patrol, and it was always very interesting working with the Border Patrol because some, most of the time I wouldn't dress like this. I would just show up as a researcher. And uh, I would just say, you know, I want to know something about migration. And, you know, they were good enough, you know, when we were doing this documentary to take us up into helicopters or uh, take us out with search and rescue into the deserts where they find the migrants, either dead or alive, uh, working on the, going on many different, uh, what they called, uh, ride-alongs with them. And uh, about halfway through the visit, I'd tell them I was a priest, and I'd just be curious to see what kind of reaction I would get from them. You know, it would either close the door or it would open one. You know, I remember one of them, they were they're kind of stunned when they found out I was a priest, and so they said, oh, gee, Father, do you, uh, do you think it's a sin that I work for the Border Patrol? <laughs> so I said, well, how do you treat the migrants? So, but there was one, one I remember in particular. Now, this was the spring of 2002. We were doing some initial filming of this. It was the spring of 2002, and this was, so 911 was in the air. So we're about, you know, eight months after 911, and, you know, starting to get a lot more information about the terrorists that had come out, and starting to figure out what went wrong, what happened. And it was three days earlier that the, uh, the, at that point, the INS had granted visas to the two terrorists who slammed their plane into the World Trade Center. So this was the deal that a flight school had gotten authorization to approve the visas, or they had, they had gotten the approved visa authorization, you know, for the pilots of the of the, of the terrorists who slammed their plane in the World Trade Center eight months after it happened. So this is the exact timing of it, right? So I actually had come across the border. We were doing some filming down in the Mexicali area, and this time I didn't show up with an official visit. There was just this Border Patrol truck right out there at the fence, you know, and there was this Border Patrol agent in the truck, and he had these huge arms, these huge lumberjack arms, you know, just hanging out the side. And, this, this guy was poised like a lion, ready to pounce on any immigrant prey that came across that fence. So I just walked up to him and, and said, uh, would you mind if you take some pictures here? He stood back, you know, you know, raised his chest like this, and he goes, who the hell are you? So I said, well, I'm a Catholic priest, and I teach at Notre Dame. And so he looked at me, and he goes, huh, you're a priest. He says, you've had a field day in the news these days. Well, I didn't even flinch, and I looked at him, and I said, well, you know, you haven't been doing so bad either. I said, you just granted visas to the two terrorists who slammed their plane in the World Trade Center eight months after it happened. I said, if you want to talk about a few in your organization, I'll be happy to begin. Well, I couldn't even believe I said this. Actually, I was just, uh, you know, I was like, I, I, I stepped back. I was like, oh, my God, what did I just do? So, but 
at that point, I said, I looked at him and says, look, are you going to go beyond your walls? And am I going to go beyond my walls? Or are we going to have a conversation here? And it was very important because there are many moments where I realized that I had to get beyond my stereotypes of this guy. He had to go beyond his of me. And, you know, when I worked with Border Patrol sometime later, I remember one time I was riding along with the Border Patrol agents. And we were in the midst of this conversation. And he was telling me about how, you know, he was pinned down by gunfire by some immigrants who were coming across smuggling drugs. You know, and he kept going on and on about, you know, he said he had to go through counseling after that. He had this fear of death, bad dreams, all the other stuff. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this guy's really got a job, you know. And then, like, no more than 20 minutes later, we were driving along the road. And I said, well, when these cars go by, I said, how do you know which ones to stop? And then he started telling me, well, you know, they're usually weighted down this way, and they look like this, that, and the other thing. And he's kind of going through the whole description. And sure enough, what do you know, a minute later, this van passes us, and he goes, oh, my gosh. And then he turns around ran after this truck. All of a sudden, I saw this cloud of smoke. These immigrants just pour out of this truck and start running. And at that moment, I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope these immigrants get away. Oh my gosh, this guy, he's got a job to do. I hope he does it, you know? And, and suddenly, I'm lost in this complexity of saying, wow, this is really, really difficult, you know? But it's, I think it's very important that, I think, to migrate, literally, beyond uh, sort of the borders that we often construct about how we perceive other people. But one of the important ones today that we most have to deal with is how we perceive the immigrant. As Professor Camarillo was saying that many times we say, well, because they've broken a law, then the case is closed. But what is really striking is that, you know, one migrant when I was in the detention centers over in Calexico in that area, you know, I said, what's the most difficult? He says, look, it's not crossing the border. He says, look, I have gone through the mountains and almost died, you know, of the cold. He says, I know what it's like to go across the desert and, and run out of food and water. He says, I know what it's like to stow away in the baggage compartment of a bus. He says, but that's not the worst part. He says, the worst part is when people treat you like you're a dog, when they spit on you and think you're nothing more than the scum of the earth. He says, that's the worst. <laughs> you know, or another set of migrants, I remember when I was with them in Mexico, they had been apprehended by the Border Patrol. Um, and when they circulated around them, they had actually played on the loudspeaker the song La Cucaracha. And he says, you know, that was so dehumanizing because we're human beings and we're being made to feel like we're less than insects. So the humanity of the migrant is so significant and it's the most fundamental border that we have to cross. And this is where the theologian says that we are as human beings regardless of nationality, race, and certainly you know, whatever our papers are, our status, made in the image and likeness of God. That's inalienable. There is no way of separating that out, that there is a sort of a fundamental worth and value to each person. And I think one of the most significant things we need to do is recognize that. Um, the second is the journey of the migrant, an aspect of the journey of the migrant. I remember one time when we were going through the desert, there was a, uh, well, I was going through the desert and kind of looking for migrants to talk to, and I remember there was this one guy holding up some water jugs in his hand. It was very clear. I was about 40 miles north of the border, so this was a long walk by the time this guy had gotten to this point. So I passed by this guy, and then all the meanwhile, I'm like, well, let's see, what do I do here? I mean, do I stop and help this guy? Or, you know, I thought, okay, now if I pick up this guy and I get caught by the Border Patrol, I'm going to face a year to 10 in prison, you know? And then I thought about that last judgment passage that I just mentioned. I said, well, on the other hand, if I get that one wrong, I said, that's even worse. So <laughs> a friend of mine in, the, in Coachella, 
he, uh, he once said to me, you know, once when he passed by a migrant, he looked at me and he says, he's a very holy man too. And he goes, I never take chances with people like that. And I looked at him and said, what, what do you mean? And he goes, uh, that's Jesus over there. <laughs> so so I, I actually turned around and uh, did pick up this guy. And I, I remember talking to him. And again, I was dressed in plain clothes. He had no idea who I was. But so I just said, you know, I just tell me about your story. And he says, oh my gosh. He says, you know, I was walking two days. He says, I couldn't keep up with my group. And so finally, my group abandoned me. And this is something out there, because when you get lost in there, even if you're trying to follow landmarks, you get very easily disoriented. I've seen even the Border Patrol collapse of heat exhaustion in, in the middle of October, which is not the most difficult time. I've seen Border Patrol get lost and disoriented in the midst of the desert. So, you know, my said, look, he said, I didn't know where I was going. And so I said, well, what did you do? He says, you know what I did? He says, I, I just prayed and prayed to God that I would get somewhere where someone could meet me and help me. And so I says, well, I, as I'm like, and I was always very curious about this because I'd always ask him, like, what do you learn about life, you know, and what do you learn about yourself? And he says, he says you know what I learned? He says, I learned that there, there's only one friend I have in life, and the only friend I have that won't abandon me is God. You know? And I didn't elicit this from him. It just came right out of him. He says, God is the one friend who won't abandon me. So I said, well, are there any parts of the scripture that... that speak to you. And he says, oh yeah. He says, you know what? My life's like Job. My friends have abandoned me. He says, I've lost my health. I've lost my family. He says, and I, and I feel sick. He says, but you know what? Job never cursed God. You know? And he says, that's who I want to be. I says, oh my gosh. You know, I mean, it's just some of the best theology I ever, ever heard. And it was uh, coming right from this experience. But it was such conviction coming from literally, you know, a devil's highway. Uh, he had been able to articulate this. But there was, um, what I also say is that there is this humanity of the migrant, there is this difficult journey of the migrant, which is saying the film really is a way of the cross. Um, but there is also a spirituality of the migrant. You know, when we were working with Professor Carrasco in this uh, Alambrista book, you know, it was very interesting to kind of do some Aztec anthropology as well, and to learn that the Aztecs understood the heart as a physical organ with a mystical quality and that the heart is always in movement. It's always in search of something. We know that in our own life. It's always in, it's always in movement, it's always journey. If we put it in this way, the heart is always migrating. It's never satisfied with the finite. And so in that sense, the spirituality of the migrant really names something that's true about human life, is that we are in fact on a journey. We are in fact migrating, you know, in theological terms, we are moving towards a promised land, you know, that culminates in our death, that we are crossing borders, you know, that it is a dangerous journey at times, that there are obstacles, that uh, there are things we have to overcome. But wouldn't it be something if we, can re if we could see that, that the image of a Christian is to be a migrant? And if we claim that, maybe we'd see the people who come to us as less threatening than we do. And that we would see that there's new life being born in our midst, even though it is a painful process. And I think the one person who really helped me see this, that not only is life a migration, but migrants bring new life, was this one woman named Maria. And I had met her down on the Mexican side of the border. I was working in the Tucson area, going back and forth between Tucson and a town called Altar in Sasabe, where migrants cross over. And Maria was a woman who came from Guatemala. 
and she had actually gotten to the point with her family where they didn't have enough money. They had maybe $3 a day that they were making, and they really couldn't, couldn't make do. So between the, the two of them, between her husband and, and herself, they had to make the decision about one of them had to come up north. And so she actually literally rolled the dice, and so she says, okay, I'll go. I'll go work for a couple years to get enough money so that the kids can have what they need. And so she literally hopped on a train like we saw in the film, made her way up to the border, and um, took her about two weeks to get up there, went through a herring journey on the train, and then tried to cross over three times. The first time, her coyote smuggler tried to rape her. The second time, she was robbed at gunpoint of everything that she had and all the money and any savings that they had that she had brought up from the north. The third time, she had gotten about two to three days into the journey, ran out of food, ran out of water, collapsed, almost died. Then the Border Patrol found her, picked her up, brought her, um, finally you know, shipped her back over the other side of the border, and then it was a few days later that I met her. And at that point, I, I asked her you know, a number of questions, and you know, they, they were just kind of gradually building up, but they'd be like, well, you know, what, what would you say to the average American if you could? You know, or if you could speak to the president, what would you say? And you know, she's like, well, look, you need the workers, we need the work. What's the problem? You know, um, or it's 15 minutes saying, like, you know, to the president, say, you know, all I want to do is feed my family. Uh, all I want to do is live a more dignified life. You know, I mean, on and on and on. But finally, I built up to the question that I was really interested in because in the end, I wanted to know what's going on inside. Uh, what's going on inside the heart? I mean, what do you think? What do you feel? How do you pray? And so I said, if you had 15 minutes to speak to God, I said, what would you say? And she was kind of taken aback, and she looked at me, and she says, I don't have 15 minutes to talk to God. She said, I'm always talking with God. And she said, but the first thing I'd say to him is I'd say thank you for having been so good to me. And I was rather stunned, and I said, I'm, 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 I'm sorry, but I must have missed something in the earlier part of the conversation. I said, but what do you mean? She says, you know, God has been so good to me that if I could see God face to face, the first thing I would say is thank you for having blessed me so much. And it's that faith in the midst of such adversity that is a sign of a liberated heart, you know. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that make a big difference in our church? Wouldn't that make a big difference in our society if we could see this more often? So it's an you know, exciting journey, and I kind of offer these thoughts just on really the humanity of the migrant, the way of the cross of the, of the immigrant, and uh, above all, kind of this inner side of the migrant, which most people don't see. There's a tremendous richness there, and I think that hopefully, as this debate continues, we can really begin to frame this, not just in terms of economic costs or political costs, but above all, in human costs. And maybe if we do, we'll be all richer because of it. So. Anyway, with that, I would just like to open it up to all of you and have more of a conversation about what you've seen and what you're thinking about. So. Now, we know some of you have uh, filled out cards with questions. If you could pass those to the side, we'll collect those. And there's a mic here. So uh, just raise your hand, and the mic will come over to you and pose a question for Father Goody. Who'd like to start? 
Yes, um, the website is www.dyingtolive.nd.edu. So one word, dying, T-O, live, dying to live, uh, .nd, as in Notre Dame, .edu. And there it has all the order information and stuff. I'm not quite sure how to phrase this, but uh, to precede the question, uh, I uh, buy into all of the immigration aspects of the story. The part that the American public seems to have the biggest problem with is the legality issue. And I'm wondering if you have some theological insights to help get past that argument. Or yes, that very much. And I think theology is the only, th well, one of the only things I know of that can help us get past that argument because this is not, well, f first of all, I think it's sometimes I get that question. People say, well, Father, which part of illegal don't you understand? And I want to just say, well, it's the illogical part. Uh, it's the ill-conceived part. Um, but it, in the end, it's not just about, see, this is what I think theology can contribute. It's, this isn't just about civil law. You know, it's also about natural law. And natural law is, is really understood as really if I have to feed my family and yet there's, a, there's, a, there's something that's keeping me in the way of getting a job, I'm going to do whatever I can. So in that sense, some people say to me, do you, think these, you know, do you think migrants feel really guilty that they're breaking the law? I said, no, I don't because they're conscious of this law. And, so, and, it's, and civil law can change. When I sat down with the vigilante groups, like Chris Simcox and others. This is in Tombstone, Arizona. Tombstone, Arizona, if you've ever been there, this is a surreal place. This is Doc Holliday, OK Corral. This is where they film like 50 Hollywood movies. Uh, people dress in Wild West costumes, and you're never quite sure where fantasy ends and where reality begins. And there's this whole kind of ethos. People build this immigration framework of like they're going to go basically get Indians. You know, uh, there's that framework. But, but you know, when I really listen to them, they're concerned about law of sort of preserving society. But then you say, these are political constructions and they're necessary, but they're not absolute. And they do change. So the very territory we were in 150 years earlier or 175 years earlier was part of Mexico. You know? And so the question is, or what are the deeper laws that ground our lives? And they are laws about human dignity. They are laws about survival. They are laws about um, seeking a better life. Uh, and they are ultimately, to me, they are all laws about God. And, and so to me, it doesn't make any sense that you'd say that our civil law, you know, trumps this law. Now, that doesn't answer it, but I would say that's where the border is. So I frame it this way. It's not just about civil law. It's about natural law. It's not just about national security. It's about human insecurity. And it's not just about citizenship, but it's about discipleship. And so I think that, that these are not easy things to resolve. But in some sense, we've got to think beyond just narrow perceptions of, of legal codes, which do change. And they change because there are deeper things going on, and those are the laws I think we also need to pay attention to. That's the way I look at it. Um, in your discussion, you speak to the immigrants' perspective, but what type of moral or ethical laws do you think that employers should be bound by that actually put the immigrants to work in America? What type of laws should 
employers be bound by. I'd like to say this too. I mean, I do like to make these qualifications in the very beginning. Says, you know, in terms of policy, in terms of other things like that, um, my job is not to really kind of proclaim policy or, in some sense, think that I would be in in the vocation, if you will, of forming policy. Mine is to proclaim the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is a kingdom of truth and life, of holiness and grace, and of justice, love, and peace. And so for me, any ethical coordinates would be coming out of that framework. And so the, you know, it, it's rather striking that as we look at it in the global picture, sometimes we think, okay, the problem is in Mexico. All right, the problem is in Mexico. I'd be the first to admit that. But the problem is also rooted in the larger global economy. It's rooted in that. 20% uh, of the world lives on less than a dollar a day. 48% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. 75% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. And that's the U.S. poverty line right there. Um, when you have so much in the hands of so little and you have so many with so few of the resources, I think there needs to be a reordering of our society. And I think the reordering has to be more of a people-centered economy rather than a profit-centered economy. Um, Catholic social teaching would say that, that the economy is made for human beings, not human beings for the economy. And so on that sense, there's a fundamental ethical shift that goes on. And another way of saying it is that I think we have to, we've moved from sort of maybe a focus on monotheism um, as a people to a focus on money theism. And when that is our God, when money becomes our God, that, that actually makes human beings dispensable. So whatever policies come out of that, it has to be people-centered, saying, do they have what they need to survive, to live, to, to live a more dignified life? And from there, more goes on. But there's a lot of very rich stuff in Catholic social teaching that, have to do, that, that kind of specify that. No easy answers, but guidelines. Uh, but it's based on human dignity, centered on human dignity. Um, I found it very interesting when you were talking about the migrant person you ran into and he was telling you about uh, God and basically being thankful to be alive. So it was kind of ironic telling you uh, he didn't know who you were yet. Um, did you inform him? And if, if you did, uh, what did he, what do you say after that? That's all I was really wondering. Um, I did, I don't remember that I did tell him. I can't remember in that situation what I did because I do think it's very important that though I publicly, you know, speak in the name of the church and seek to be a witness to the living God, I, uh, I guess over time I really, the older I get, the more I feel like it's a lot of an unlearning experience and witnessing, not like, okay, I'm going to tell you about God, but witnessing what God is doing. And that, this is what this person was doing, saying, oh my God, God is here, you know? So it was that kind of witnessing. And I think, you know, I want to share with you this one experience. I, when I was doing my studies, I finally got the point where I said, you know, I can't always work this out in my head, what this is all about. And so I really felt like, like I need to start on the edge here and ask the poor what they think about God. And I remember one time I was in Grand Central Station in New York. And at, at that point, I just said, you know, I'm just going to ask people what they think about God. It was a similar thing. But it was like uh, I've been talking to pimps and uh, prostitutes and, you know, all day. And then at one point, there was, a, there was a woman who was homeless. She was in, if you've been to Grand Central Station, you know how busy this gets. And so I actually got this cup of coffee, two of us, two cups of coffee, and I sat down right next to her. And so I offered her the cup of coffee, and, and I looked at her, and I was curious to know what was going on, but I didn't want to be invasive. So it was sort of, 
you know, not sure. So I asked her, I said, how are you doing? She goes, good. And so I said, well, what's new? Nothing. I said, how's your day been? Fine. You know, just iron door just came down right between us, you know. And then, then like, you know, she just, I'm sorry, I just started drinking my coffee and I watched these people go by. And then finally she, she, uh, she after about 15 minutes, she looks over and she goes, who the hell are you anyways, you know? So I, I just told her who I was just as a priest. And at that point, you know, something happened that I didn't expect. And what happened was she just burst open into tears and she just started crying, you know? And again, at that moment, I just wanted to step out of the way and said, God is doing something here. I don't want to get in the way, you know? And, and so, but I stayed with her about another 15 minutes and then it began to sort of quiet down. And so then I looked at her and I said, I said, what's your name? And she said, my name is Sarah. And uh, so I said, Sarah, you know, I said, if you, if you could change anything in the world today, I said, what would it be? You know, and her answer stunned me, you know. She looked at me, she said, if I could change anything in the world today, she said, I would change my mind. You know, and I was like, what do you mean? And she says, you know, I've been filled with such bitterness and hatred, and I can't forgive. If I could only release that, I would be a free person, you know. And so for me, that's the exciting thing, you know, is, 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 is witnessing where God is acting, you know. And that's what that moment was about for me, you know. You know, not being the religious figure, you know, there, but just saying, wow, isn't this exciting? Yes. Uh, there's something very powerful about the angle that you take on this. Um, and at one level, it's not surprising in that when you start with an abstract issue, you can argue around, but as you individualize it or as you humanize it, 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 it uh, develops more meaning. And it's something that I've wrestled with a long time. I got into this uh, immigration discussion before it became in vogue in the last four or five years, just with friends who are arguing about migrating. And I kept tripping over why it's different for the Canadian border and the Mexican border, and more particularly the New Mexican border. And something that I, I never have been quite able to um, uh, fully uh, internalize, uh, it, but you're helping with your conversation tonight, has been, um, it just seems so wrong. I mean, I grew up in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and, uh, you know, I grew up, I came to Stanford, and, you know, I've done well so far. And it just seems there's, just, there's something really wrong about the fact that I could have been born 400 miles south of where I was born, and my life and outlook and prospects would have been so vastly different. And I'm, I've never been able to articulate it beyond just that, but it's, it's, it's simply wrong. You know, and, and, and it, it is, it's beyond civil law, it gets into natural law, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's human dignity, uh, there's, there's something around it. I'm, I'm wondering maybe you can elaborate further on that to help me better articulate what I'm stuck with. Well, I, you're, on, you're on to it. You've got this deep gut reaction that, you know, that just needs to be sort of, you know, paid attention to because it does lead to some important places. This past summer, I was over. I was in Oxford, and we had 70 of us from 41 countries, and everyone was dealing with migration in different parts of the world. And I was the only theologian there, and it was kind of very interesting to hear all this because you know we had political perspectives, legal perspectives, social perspectives, cultural perspectives, all these other things. And I thought, well, this is what the theologian adds to this conversation: is saying no one was mentioning human dignity. We kept talking labels, we kept talking other stuff, but no one, no one could get to that point of saying made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore people are not disposable. People cannot be just discarded. People cannot be ignored. That, that, that somehow that, 
that was very important to name for, for me to say, you know, the theologian names something here, brings something out here that as valuable as the other disciplines are, and I do work with the other disciplines, but somehow it also draws something out that only theology can name. And, and so I think that that's why it's important to go into that. And I think we should be disturbed and pay attention to that. I remember in doing this film, uh, I was down in um, Tijuana, and I remember I was in this Tijuana house the night before, and I asked one immigrant, you know, what was it that uh, he was looking for? And he said, I'm looking for literally bread to eat for my family. And the next day I was in Coronado, Coronado Island in San Diego, which is, as you know, is this resort area, and I was walking on the sidewalk, and we were asking this one woman who was there, a tourist, I said, you know, what are you looking for here? And she says, well, there's a specialty bread here that we can get that we can't get anywhere else. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, two people looking for bread in the same part of the world, but just from two totally different universes. And it should bother us. I mean, it should say, like, something's wrong with this picture. And I think that the other thing that theology gives us a language for, and it gives us a tradition for, is how to speak about justice. And justice isn't just like getting angry with people, and it's not just about holding up picket signs, you know, which is part of it. Justice, justice in its deepest sense, from a biblical perspective, has to do with building right relationships. And, you know, uh, if, if we see that the Christ event as God's building right relationship where we break it again and again, then we see the task of community is to restore relationships where they're broken, whether they be economically polarized, whether they be through, you know, other things. But I think that's, to me, where, where I'm at is that it, it gives us a language and it gives us a tradition to, to speak about these issues that are in our gut, in our heart most of all. Yes. Um, I have a kind of a three-part question. Um, Professor Camarillo at the beginning of the presentation spoke about using um, religious, moral, spiritual discourse uh, and its potential to uh, provide a new perspective about immigration to people who might be opposed to it. Um, and I'm wondering if you've had any success in doing that. Um, also, if, do you, if you feel the church is doing enough to show... Um, you know, it's, it's followers, the humanity of, of people, not in a general sense, but in specific um, cases like immigration. And if you don't, what you think the church can do to better address, address those issues? So the first question is, um, have I had any success in communicating from the uh, religious, ethical uh, perspective? I guess that's up to you. I guess it's up for you, to, uh, or, or can you be more? Well, well, I mean, not to people... Not to people who, you know, are already on the side of immigration, but for example, the, the man who Professor Camarillo quoted, who come into a, a dialogue openly against it and showing them a new perspective and in the end helping them to... Of persuasion. To persuasion, yeah, changing stuff. Of persuasion. Um, it's a good question. And maybe, uh, again, this is the way I look at it. Um, I look at what Jesus did and... And I recognize that, it seems to me, the way I read the scriptures is that Jesus, by design, or by providence, basically, had power over nature, power over sickness, power over death, but not power over the human heart, you know, and that, that there's a way in which that you can't enter by force. And so when I meet people like that, I guess the first thing that goes through my mind is, you know, are you willing to see things in another way? And if the wall is too thick and too too entrenched, 
you know, if people say, there's no way I'm going to change, I'm right, you know, um, there's really nothing I can do. And in that sense, no, I'm very terribly unsuccessful. Um, but I think there's always that hope that people will begin to see things in a new way. It's rather striking that some of the, you know, some of my hate mail comes from Christians, you know, um, that it's, it's sometimes the religious right, not just kind of right spectrum right, but the people who have all the answers are the ones that I'm really the most uh, troubled by. Um, and I think it's sometimes the, the true believer that can be the most dangerous. Bernard Lonergan was a Canadian theologian, and he said there's two types of people, those who need certainty and those who seek understanding. Um, and someone said in return, said, you mean there's two types of people, those who need certainty and those who need understanding? He said, no, those who need certainty and those who seek understanding. And I think that there's, there's a difference um, in that. And so I think a theologian is always trying to seek understanding with conviction, but not with a kind of certitude that pretends to know you have to have humility to do this. And I think the more you get into it, you know, I think you realize how much you really don't know. And so how do you pay attention to other people? And maybe, maybe look to those issues where I think the theologian also is, and from a perspective of spirituality, how do I go to that deeper place in the heart to say behind that wall of this person ripping out the IVs and doing other stuff, there's a person in fear, you know? And how do you, how do you speak to that place, respecting your limits? but hoping that grace will, will, will actually break through. So the second question, I'm sorry, that was the... the if, if the church is doing enough to highlight specific issues. The church is doing a lot more than people are aware of. I mean, it actually, knowing that there are a lot of other people in the, ch in the church, I mean, one question is, what do you mean by church? But if you mean in terms of the church leadership, whether it's doing a lot... Um, it actually has published a number of documents on that and is coming out pretty clearly that it, that it advocates on the side of the immigrant and that it's its tradition, its mission, and so on. Cardinal Mahoney went so far as to say that in light of the Sensenbrenner legislation, which basically was going to criminalize not just immigrants but anybody who helps immigrants, he says, if that's the case, I'm going to instruct all my priests to be arrested. So that, I think, is a sign of, of hope of moving in the right direction. In, um, in comparison to the need it seems like it's, it's uh, um, little, you know, but at least it's movement in the right direction, even when there is great resistance, even within the church, you know, I mean, church membership. So it can do a lot more, but I think it's moving in the right direction, and I think the closer it gets to its core, I think it discovers that. We'll, we'll end on, on this one question submitted by one of you out there, and it reads, uh, it's a comparative question, following one of our CSRE comparative uh, would comparing runaway slaves with illegal immigrants, uh, is it a valid comparison? Runaway slaves were also illegal when slavery was legal. So what, what would you do, Daniel, with, the, with that kind of comparison? Wow, that's a good one. So is, is there a comparison between runaway slaves and, and immigrants? Is it, a valid, is it a valid comparison to think about runaway slaves uh, and the status of illegal immigrants? Um, I think what is valid about that is that there is a, an, a slavery that, um, that the immigrant and the, the African-American was experiencing in the sense that they are both, both chained by some, something other than their own free will, that they're chained by, in the case of Mexico, economic slavery. 
and so there is a, there is a cry for liberation. There is in the human heart this hunger for uh, liberation, and so in that sense, I see a great common ground between the slave and the immigrant. But I would even take that further, also, in the peop in the country where they're receiving the immigrant. If I don't have the capacity to imagine my life in new categories, if I don't have the capacity to see the person who comes to me as a stranger, as a brother and sister, if I don't have the capacity to feel and have compassion, then indeed I'm the one enslaved by something much worse, you know, because inside something has died. And so I think that maybe that's the truth is that on some level there's a slavery that we all experience and that I think there's a deep hunger in the heart that theology names spirituality helps us deal with but it's this hope for freedom that you know says how do we kind of keep moving on this journey um, to a place of hope and a place of community and a place ultimately you know that fulfills the deepest longings that we have within us so any event thank you it was great being with you tonight The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.